for the rest of us who remain. Uh, I promise I'm going to make this about Jesus. I will not talk about the Tennessee-Alabama game that resulted in a 52-49 to victory for Tennessee. So uh, I won't talk about that this morning. We're going to go straight to Jesus. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18, 1 through 8. Before we get reading this, let me just tell you, I have the privilege to preach once a month by the grace of Marshall, Pastor Marshall, who's preaching at another church elsewhere this morning. And uh, so what that means is uh, it's bittersweet for me because I sit there and wrestle with a passage for nearly a month. And then I get ready to come up before you and I have so much that I feel like the Lord has revealed to me that I just want to unleash and vomit it all on you. And, uh, but you guys don't allow me to do that for three hours or four hours. I have, I think, 30 to 45 minutes for most of you start getting itchy and then the signs start rolling up in the back. Um, and so uh, just know that as we dive in this morning, uh, there is so much about the topic that we're going to talk about today that I would love to unpack for you or to love to, to talk with you more about. Uh, and so along the way, I'm going to give you some crumbs that you in your own time can go follow if you want to study this passage a little bit deeper or this pericope that we're going to be looking at. But uh, just so know that, know that I am resisting for your benefit all the things that I would love to say. And so the Holy Spirit has laid some things in my heart that I've pulled from the passage that I think should speak to us this morning concerning what we're going to be looking at, which is found in Luke chapter 18. So if you have pen and paper, you want to get your notes ready on our app, you can open up the Bible. There, you can write notes in there as well if you did bring paper or pen. But uh, let's all do what we usually do every Sunday and stand for the reading of the gospel, which is in Luke this morning, chapter 18, 1 through 8. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Version. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night. And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Father, may your will be done. Jesus, may your word be proclaimed. And Spirit, may your work in us be accomplished this morning. Amen. You all can have a seat. <clears throat> I grew up in Alaska, and for those who live in the lower 48, you might not understand what takes place on a playground during recess time in a very cold, remote area. It's not really remote. It's Wasilla, Alaska, where I grew up with. But we looked forward to this 30 minutes of time. The only part, the only difficult and challenging part of recess, though, is yet you had to get in all your bibs and your 
your overalls and your heavy coat and your boots. It was a long process, so that dwindled down your time. But there's one thing that we did in the wintertime that I remember growing up that became one of our favorite things to do during recess, and that was to play King of the Mountain. Now, I don't know if you play this in lower 48 because the mountains here are really tiny hills. But um, in Alaska, uh, you have these graders that would grade the parking lots and, and create these massive mounds of snow. And so what we would do is we would get all our, our gear on and we would run and race and play King of the Mountain, which is just this game that you hold the mountaintop. A group of your friends, you sit there and you just push other kids off the mountain all day. And it is the greatest amount of fun. Now, I was a pudgy little kid, a pretty big kid. Matter of fact, I was so big that as a fourth grader, I got to play on the fifth and sixth grade football team. I was the only one in Alaska to do that because I was the only one in fourth grade that big. So um, I had the privilege of doing that. And I, and I was a shy kid. I didn't feel like I offered much uh, by way of intelligence or like sports <laughs> or anything like that. And so I was just a quiet kid and, and shy and timid, except for when it came to King of the Mountain, I had this amazing ability. Because I, for whatever reason, no matter how big I was, I had amazing balance. And so like being the King of the Mountain was very easy for me. And I had all these little tiny friends of mine in fourth grade. And so um, one day, so one day it was recess time, we're gearing up, but for whatever reason, our class was a little bit late to get to go outside. And so as we're running outside to the, the mound, the freshly graded mound of snow, we see the fifth and sixth graders out there. And uh, for me, they all looked like they were dressed in black and looked like a bunch of demons. I was like, man, these, these kids are just like really mean and gross and ugly. Do you remember the, um, the guy, the redhead guy with the braces in the Christmas story? Right, beats up that kid. Man, he, growing up, I was like, man, that kid scares me to no end. And all of them looked like that, the fifth and sixth graders. However, for some reason, I had confidence that I was like, well, I mean, I've been king of the mountain, and it's so easy for me. I'm just going to crawl up this hill, and my friends and I are going to take this mountain. And uh, because there was no way they were going to be able to do it. I mean, they were fifth and sixth graders, right? They started, I mean, I think some of them had kind of failed a couple years because some of them had facial hair. And I was like, I don't know about this. And here I am, I'm a big fourth grader. So I climb, right? And uh, I don't know if you guys realize this in the lower 48. I guess I'm being snarky. Um, when snow gets piled and you start walking on it, it starts melting a little bit. But if it's cold enough, it'll start having a dome of ice. And so on top of this mountain's a dome of ice. Well, I mean, I was often walking from my, uh, my house to the bus stop, which is five miles uphill both ways in the snow. And so I'm really good at walking through the snow. I'm really good at walking on ice. And so I just start climbing up. And I tell my little friends, you just stay behind me, and we'll reclaim this mountain. And so I'm pushing little kids off to the side. I'm working my way up. And there is a circle of fifth and sixth graders up at the top of this mound of snow. And the first one reaches out to push me down. And I just take his hands and I throw him down. Now I'm up and I go directly to the other side of the circle and I start throwing everybody up. Next thing you know, me and these little um, Frodo-like friends of mine are all on top of this mountain. And I had this great sense. That I was like, man, I'm glad that I was able to do some form of justice against these fifth and sixth graders that were just literally launching little kids off the top of the mountain. 
Now, I tell that funny story because even as a fourth grader, there is a sense, even in children, that things need uh, to have justice served upon them. That sometimes the little man gets pushed down quite a bit, and even little kids look for a champion to come and help them, their mom and dad, right? And this isn't no different for adults. This is no different, actually, for the world. For all of us are really fascinated and captivated by the book of Revelation because all of us realize in this world, even people that don't believe in God, that things aren't right. Things ought not to be the way they are. Injustices happen, that there is a reality of evil. And all of us long for it to come and be made right. And for Christians, all of us have this hope that is set before us that Jesus is going to return and set things right. And so we're fascinated by this. This is why a lot of our small groups that I hear about uh, in other churches are wanting to go through the book of Revelation because they want to interpret the signs of our current culture and say, oh, look, so there it is. See, these are the signs of the end times because we really are wearing out and we want Jesus to return. And I get that. I understand that. And you're not alone in that. Every generation that has come before us has felt the exact same way. And all of them are searching for when it is that things would be made right, that justice would come to fruition, that evil would be done away with. And this is the very topic that we find Jesus speaking about in this parable in chapter 18. But before we dive into this parable and lift out some implications that Jesus speaks to us about in it, there's a, I want to give you the context, right? I want to give you the conversation that's taken place and the reason why Jesus goes into this parable. So if you want to open up your Bibles or, or just listen, I'm going to read just briefly a few verses all the way back in chapter 17 to frame our minds so that when we come to this parable, we're going to understand why Jesus is telling us this parable about this widow. The first verses I want to come to is Luke in chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. He said, it says this, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And so this pericope begins right there in verse 20 in the chapter 17 that begins this conversation about the end times, eschatology. And the first question that comes out is when? The Pharisees, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And Jesus' reply is it's already happened. It's already been initiated. It's in your midst. And later he goes on to say, and it will also come. So there's an already, not yet, aspect to the return to to the kingdom coming. But we move on from there. So that question is very similar to the question we often ask. When is Jesus coming back? Let's study Revelations and figure this out to see if the times are pointing to soon, sooner than later. Pharisees are asking the exact same question. So the Pharisees ask, when? But then you journey a little bit further down in verse 37, and the disciples ask, where? In answering, they said to him, the disciples said to him, 
Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, that's a very mysterious phrase. Like I said, there's so much to unpack in that first question and Jesus' response. Now, this question of where and his mysterious thing. If you want to dive in deeper to what he's talking about there, I would cross-reference you to go to Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 20. But we don't have time to get into that. Because Jesus doesn't get into those. He talks about, yes, judgment is going to come when the Son of Man returns and it's going to come swiftly. He mentions a few things, but then Jesus flips the the conversation. So he's been asked by the Pharisees, when is this happening? He's been asked by his disciples, where is this going to happen? And Jesus gives them a, a little bit to go on, but then he says, let me tell you a parable. And this parable, as we walk through it, I'm going to lift out some things for you. But what Jesus is getting to is you should not concern yourself with the questions of where. You should not concern yourselves with the questions of when. You should concern yourselves with the questions of what you ought to be doing in the meantime. That's the most important thing. And so he gives us this parable. And so we're going to, I'm going to walk through it again. And this time I'm going to highlight some things for you and then we're going to talk about them. So let me just read it again. It begins in chapter 18. Now Jesus was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. So right there, it gives us exactly what we ought to be doing. Luke pens down this parable that Jesus tells and says, here's the purpose of the whole parable. This is how we are meant to understand it. And he tells us that at all times we ought to be praying and not to lose heart. But I want you to underline or circle or remember not to lose heart. I'm going to come back to that here in a second. Verse 2, saying, in a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God nor respect man. I think we all understand that. We can look at our current culture and the leaders that rule the world, and we can understand what kind of ruler that is. And there was a widow in that city. And she kept coming to him, saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For, while he was un- for a while, the ruler was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, underline that word, bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. Underline that. Wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge just said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, here's the question that Jesus poses to them. Will he find faith on the earth? So in this parable, I think the widow obviously is an analogy for us. And so I wanted to point out and just lift out for you just three things that the widow tends to um, show us and reveal to us. The widow's attitude, the actions of the widow, and then the agency of the widow. First, we understand that the widow, right, in this culture has nobody to speak for her has nothing of her own, her husband is gone, and now she is being, by her enemies, subdued, and has been, an injustice and evil is being done to her, 
right? And her attitude towards this is that this is not right, and she stands for righteousness. So her attitude that we see in this widow is that this is, she's going to do something about things that are not right. She's going to seek someone to make them right. And secondly is the actions, that this widow seems to be very persistent in all that she does. And she's persistent in three ways. She's persistent in standing up. For in verse 3, it says that she kept coming to the ruler who had no respect for man. If he had no respect for man, he's definitely not going to have respect for the widow. He has not even respect for God. And yet she kept continually coming to stand up, says, no, this isn't right. I am demanding justice. I am demanding you as the ruler to set things right, regardless of how evil you are. And she was persistent in standing up. And she was also persistent in speaking out, of declaring to give her legal action against her opponent. To stand up for what is right and to do it. She declared this. She proclaimed it with her mouth. So a widow, who would have not been taken seriously in this culture, is, has courage enough to go before an evil ruler who has no respect and no regard for man and continually stands up and continually speaks out against injustice until she is heard, until she receives it. And this is why in the third sense that she strikes back. Now, at first sight, when you read this, we've read it twice, there is nothing there's no language that speaks to us that seems contentious here. That uh, the widow is um, doing something extraordinary. Unless you dive into how Luke writes this, okay? Those words that I told you to underline, okay, they're significant. Now, I've done some research. I've gotten to the Greek text. I don't want to be too heady here, but it's, we never will get this theme that Luke is writing with specifically in this parable unless you look at the Greek words. Because in what he does there, that at the beginning, when he talks about don't lose heart, that means do not, like a soldier, turn cowardly. Instead, be courageous in the face of evil. That is the word ekkakos in the Greek, which is translated here, don't lose heart. I think that's interesting to kick off this parable of being courageous. Interesting. Pray always and be courageous. It's interesting. So maybe there's no theme here, but we have more words that are contentious in this. And that is the one where the, the ruler talks about that the widow's bothering him. This word is kaptos, and it means to strike, to persistently beat one. Wailing with exertion. Isn't that interesting? I think Luke's doing something here. He's using specific language when he's communicating this parable that Jesus told. And the third, I mean, now there's two examples, but here's a third one. When he says, she's wearing me out. It means under the eyes. Giving one a black eye. Okay, so at this point in my, in my research and my study, I'm like, all right. So there is a theme here that Luke is communicating, and it becomes kind of humorous because now what we have is not just a widow that's just persistent and seems nagging. No, she's contentious for justice and seeking things to be made right. 
in a sense, what Luke is saying, if you were to take it word for word from the Greek, is that this widow is being courageous, that she goes to this evil ruler with no respect and continues just to strike him under the eyes until he gets a black eye and he says, all right, fine. I'll give you your justice. Just leave me alone. You're wearing me out. The persistence of the widow is described by Luke as a type of persistence that is contentious until it is answered and responded to. It's much like a child who repeats themselves over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until you finally listen to them and give them what they want. Bo has been doing this to me all week. Mommy's gone. She's in Phoenix doing some uh, photography. And dude wears me out. That dude, first thing in the morning, he comes down to my room, and I can hear him come down the stairs, and he comes, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And I made a coffee cake this week um, because Mommy's gone so I can have sugar. And so, uh, <laughs> and I got to feed him sugar, and he's like, Daddy, can I have cake? And I'm waking up, and he just will not stop. Daddy, can I have cake? Daddy, can I have cake? Daddy, have cake? And I, I know I should not give him cake. I know that that is not probably the best parenting one can do is to give kids cake first thing in the morning but I'm a good daddy, and this guy wears me out. I'm like, yes, stop repeating yourself. I'll give you a piece of cake. That's what this widow is doing to this ruler. Having faith like a child that says, I'm going to be so annoying and so nagging and so contentious, I'm going to be beating under your eyes until you give me and respond to me, just like Bo does with me. And that's what's taking place. And so it seems to me, so what's the point? What's the implication of Jesus telling this parable in this way, with this slight of humor and this language of contention? Is it if to say that while you are waiting for the return of God, while you are waiting for the return of the king, for the Son of Man to come and deliver full justice and to rid the world of all evil, what you ought to be doing is being patient, but, being per, but not being just patient, but being persistent, which means we're not only supposed to be a patient people, enduring in our faith, but we're also not to be an idle people. We are to be doing something. And is this the only example that we have of one contending, of one wrestling in the faith to prevail, to receive a blessing? No. You know, what's, what's funny is uh, I love how God works. When I was studying this, I was also, I've been going through the book, of, studying the book of Genesis, and uh, I'm fascinated by Jacob wrestling with God in that story there. And guess what our lectionary reading was today? I, I, did, I had not looked at the lectionary readings until like two days ago. And I was like, oh, so Lord, yes, I hear you. We will reference that in reference to this parable. And so real briefly, we're going to sidestep and look at this because I think it will help frame more importantly what this parable and why Jesus is telling this parable to get to a specific point. So Jacob wrestles. Genesis 32, you could turn there or just listen. Then Jacob was left alone. Who is more alone than a widow? Who is left alone? Because her husband has passed. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. So this is during the night, during the darkness, maybe during the evil, as we saw in the, in the, the days are evil in the parable. 
And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, when the man had saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. Now, just so you know, in the Old Testament, anytime it talks about the dawn or the sun rising, that is a form of resurrection, expectation. It's a little crumb you could chase later. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so he said to him, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. Now, let me just pause real real quick and give you a a brief um, frame here. Jacob and Esau, right? They were contending in the womb. And then Esau comes out, but with Jacob holding the heel. Jacob seems to be very interested in having his father bless him because he knows that the passing on of this blessing from his father means that he is the one through which the Messiah would come. So the blessing's a big deal. And Esau squandered it, and Jacob got it. So there's been this contending. Not only with his brother Esau, there's contending with his father to say, hey, hey, give me your blessing." And then there's a a contentious wrestling with Laban for his wives. So Jacob, his name means one who supplants men. And see, though he was the second born, he supplanted the first born and became the one who inherited the blessing because he wrestled with them until he was blessed. So Jacob wrestles with men. And that's, by essence, what Jacob means. But then here, he's given a new name. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. And Israel means wrestled with God. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Right there, that verse. Oftentimes we only think about Jacob wrestling with God, but Jacob's life was defined by wrestling with God and men until he prevailed, until he was blessed, until the blessing was received. And so Jacob named that place Benial, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him. Interesting. If you take the theme of resurrection, the sun rose upon Israel just as he crossed over Penuel and he was limping on his thigh. There's often times in our lives, and while we are waiting for the return of the king, that we need to wrestle with both God and man. That we wrestle with God, but through prayer, to say, things aren't right, God. Please make them right. Please do what you say you will do and come swiftly. I know all of us have experienced some level of injustice and evil, and I don't have time to go into all the lists of those that I've experienced and those that I know that some of you have experienced. And so I know that all of us long for things to be made right, but how many times have we found ourselves weeping and pleading and wrestling with God until we are blessed? By blessing, I don't mean like the material things of the world, but that he generally gives us the things we need to endure these evil times. To help us understand what we're going through. 
And we need to wrestle with men. We don't need to just be an idle people who keeps our mouth shut. We are the only ones that are able to do rightness by God's own word and to speak rightness into the world. And this brings us back to the parable. Because the widow, think about the character of a widow. Why is Jesus using a widow in this parable? He could have used an orphan. He could have used anything as an example, but he uses a widow. And it dawned on me one day on the treadmill as I was thinking through this. I was like, it's interesting. Isn't the church, in a sense, a kind of type of widow because Jesus died and he rose again and is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, and yet we're still here in the earth. And yes, he sent his Holy Spirit and lives within us, but we are a type of widow living in the world without her husband, but we are the ones who are to continue the work of our husband who initiated justice. And so the widow, I think, is an analogy for the church. And that's when we come to the agency of the widow that I see in this parable. She is an agent for justice. Think about the parable. How is it that the justice came to fruition? One is because finally the ruler executed it. Says, okay, fine, I'll give you justice. But he would not have done that had it not been for the actions of the widow. So in a sense, the widow speaks to us as an analogy for all believers to be an agent to execute justice into the world, to make things right as Jesus has initiated it. And so if the church is to be an agent of justice, how is it that we go about doing this? Do we go about doing it by pushing and shoving little people off the mountain? Do we go about punching people literally in the face, striking back? How is it that we ought to go about doing it? And this is, uh, this is what I believe is part of the family business. Now, for those that are new, uh, I, I reference the family business because that's what I see tasked to the church, the bride of Christ, as we live our lives. The family business is this, that God can do all things by himself, but he has employed us and he's invited us to participate in his work, meaning God is restoring all things and making all things new, and he's going to do it by using his people who believe in him as his agents and employs them in his family business to spread his kingdom all over the world. And that's done through the proclamation of the gospel. That we are to deliver to people who are sinners like we once were the truth of the matter. And what all that Jesus has done in his first dose of justice You have to see that the cross of Christ is the first dose of justice that God took on himself. Instead of giving it to you, he took it upon himself and served justice so that you can then now be justified even though all of us have been evil and sinful. And that all who believe in Jesus and him dying on the cross and being raised from the grave will be made right and have been established right to the eyes of God. That's the first dose of justice. And now we become agents of that justice. And then we go and tell others that, look, justice has been served on the cross in Jesus. And if you believe in him, you will begin to have things made right in your life by God Almighty. 
that's why we proclaim the word of God. And that is our role in the family business of the triune God. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are working that, and they've invited us and employed us into that for all those who believe. But that's just not it. That's not our only thing. There's another department in the family business, and it's the Department of Justice. And we are to be agents doing that. And how is it that we do that? We do that by our works of righteousness, or here's a fancy word for it, our piety. Our works of righteousness. That's the second way we serve the justice of God in the present world as we live out our faith in righteousness. Despite how the world acts in chaos and in evil, we act out our faith by righteous works, which we do by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's key. I never want to communicate that the works that you perform are in and of your own efforts and power, but it is the power of the Holy Spirit working through you that you are able to do anything good for the kingdom. These righteous deeds are read all over the scriptures. So let me give you a few. This is how we ought to work out these acts of righteousness in the world. If we want the world to be set right, then we have to show it and demonstrate the rightness, the right way by which to go about things. And here's just a few of them. We tend to the poor and needy, Isaiah 1.17. We stand for what is right without wavering. We're not easily deterred subjectively if it contradicts truth or what we are told is right by God. We stand firm, we stand up, and we speak out, and we strike back. We overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 21. We don't pay evil with evil. We overcome evil by doing good. For as the church, we are the city on the hill, the one that gives light to the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It is a refuge. And it gives glory to God. And how do you shine forth light? By being agents of light. By speaking about light, which is in Christ. And doing what Christ did, who showed us light. When we become agents of light. When we are reviled, we do not revile in return. 1 Peter 2.23, we never reenact evil, but we always act in righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. For we recognize that we don't wrestle each other. We don't wrestle flesh and blood. We wrestle the evil and the dark powers of this world. Ephesians 6.10-20. Like James says, our religion is taking care of orphans and widows. That's how we execute justice presently in this world, by tending to those who have no one to represent them, who can't tend to themselves. We do the poor and needy. We do the very thing that we read about in Jesus' ministry. He was going in and out among cities and towns, healing people, eating with sinners, tending to the poor and needy. And he was exercising, setting things right. It's not right that this person has this because of sin. It is not right for this. It is not right for this. And Jesus comes and he says, get up. Your faith has made you well. 
Jesus was executing and initiated justice, and we just continue to take on that task. And so we are to not only proclaim the gospel as employed into this family business, but we're also to do these works of rightness or righteousness. And we do this until the return of the Son of Man when he brings fullness of justice and executes it. I think a fitting example of this, as much as I don't like to watch baseball and it bores me to death, I think it offers us a good analogy of this family business of exercising uh, our agency in the Department of Justice. It's as if the score is in our opponent's favor. It's the bottom of the inning. We're losing the game. We're in the dugout, and it's our turn to offense. Our enemy has taken the field, and they feel victory right there. And we're not asked to sit in the dugout and wait for the big hitter, Jesus, to come out. Instead, Jesus says, you're up. And we go, and we strive, and we strike, and we go in first base. And another comes and works second base, third base. We're participating in the game. We're adding advantage through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then comes the big hitter, Jesus, the cleanup crew. And now because the whole, all the bases are loaded, because all of those he's invited into executing his justice, he now will come and he'll just hit a grand slam, clean everything up, win the game, and finish it for us. For the one who began the work in us will see it to completion. The one who initiated justice by taking it on himself first in the first dose will come and deliver the second do dose, which will bring all evil to finality. So now we come to the payoff. Now we come to the, okay, that was kind of nice to walk through, but now so what? How do we apply this to our lives? There's a few things that I think we can apply. One, and this might seem extremely random, but it dawned on me when I was reading through the, the story of, the, of Jacob. And that last verse there. Now the sun rose upon Jacob just as he was crossing over the stream, and he was limping on his thigh. If you back up even further in Genesis, it gives this prophecy that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. I think many of us are free and clear of limps and bruises because we are not engaging. We are not contending in the faith. We are sitting idly by in this world. We are not carrying on all that Jesus initiated. And so we have no limps and bruises. And so I think our first thing is Maybe get some limps and bruises. Be contentious in the way that is revealed in the scriptures. Because I guarantee that Jacob, as he was limping across the stream to where his family was, wasn't minding that he was limping. And we're not told if he was limping the rest of his life, but I bet that he was, and I bet he, he would not seek a doctor to fix it. Because sometimes those limps and those bruises are the very markers 
that show us that God has delivered us and blessed us. And I think Jesus, when we get to heaven, I think Jesus is going to have a bruised heel, and we're going to see the marks on his hands and his side, and we're going to know that, yes, that bruise means you've crushed the head of the serpent. And those marks in your hands and your side and on your feet mean you've saved and redeemed your, and set things right for your people. And there's much glory in those things. And may this be a word of encouragement. Maybe you do have limps and bruises. I know I have mine. Matter of fact, I've contemplated whether I'd share them with you this morning, and I won't, don't have time for it. But we all have limps and bruises, and they are markers of God's goodness and deliverance. And they do point us to the reality that God will overcome and set things right. The second thing, I think that is even a greater encouragement from this parable, that justice isn't the only benefit. Now, this parable and this whole pericope that we've been looking at is all about God delivering justice and setting things right through the Son of Man when he returns. But that's just not all, because Jesus is concerned what you do in the meantime before that happens. Before all that comes to fruition, when the Son of Man returns, Jesus' whole point is, you have something to be doing. And while you're doing that, I'm going to do some great things in you that have nothing to do with justice, but they have everything to do with your sanctification. For what purpose is it that we, he wants us to endure suffering? What purpose does he do to allow us to wait around on him while we experience evil? And we experience all these things and these injustices. What can it do in us? Well, with God, he can take those evil and bad things and he turns them and works them for our good. How so? Well, one, it makes our faith active. And James says, if you don't have action in your faith, then you don't have faith. And if you don't have faith, then you're not saved. And then when the Son of Man comes, you're not on the right side. So it gives us the assurance that faith has been wrought into our hearts because we work it out in our lives and we do it. It works discipline in us. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, this is what Paul says. He, Paul himself disciplines his body and makes it his slave so that after I have preached to others, I may not be disqualified. Waiting and enduring, long-suffering, waiting for the return of all things to be made right, finally, what we are to do with our lives while we're waiting, brings discipline in our lives. To live each day doing what is right, executing what is right each and every day, producing fruit in our lives, growing our faith. It also, in our long-suffering and waiting, conforms us to the image of Christ. That's our whole goal. That's the whole point of your sanctification, is that so you look less like you and you look more like Jesus, who we know has been approved by God because God says, rise and sit at my right hand. Enduring evil and injustice makes us just like Jesus. Because Jesus experienced it all and yet didn't revile, but he overcame. And he delivered all those in the slavery of sin and released them all and set them free. Fourthly, we learn obedience through suffering. 
for this is what Jesus himself experienced. Hebrews 5, 8. Although he was a son of God, Jesus learned obedience from the things which he suffered. You want to learn to obey God? You will learn obedience through suffering. But not only that, your suffering and the obedience that you learn through suffering also demonstrates to God your complete submission to him, that he has your whole entire life, that there is not one part of your life that he does not own, that he is not Lord of, that he is not master of. Philippians 2.8, being found in the appearance of man, this is speaking about Jesus, being found in the appearance like us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, enduring the cross, demonstrates his submission to the will of the Father, and he demonstrates his willingness to do all he can for you. And this gives us even an additional thing, that if the first dose of justice was upon, that came to fruition through Jesus Christ on the cross, then we can have confidence that the second dose is coming to fruition. Even though right now we're wondering when and where, we have confidence because Jesus died on a cross and he rose from the grave. And God's not going to stop with that. He's going to send him again. We can have confidence and assurance of this and we can hope for it. And so not only are we to be agents of justice, executing it in our lives while we wait, and not only do we have the hope of the justice to come, but in the meantime, as we are working for God in this world, we are also being conformed. Our faith is also growing through these things, and our sanctification is being realized. And the author of our faith will become our perfecter of our faith through these means. And finally, Jesus asks you a question. And the parable comes to an end. Will Jesus find faith when he returns? Will he find his faithful ones being faithful in their lives while they're waiting for him? A, a kind of faith that has been in persistent prayer. A faith that has been actively Spending and spreading justice. A faith that has grown from a seed to a tree bearing fruit in sanctification. A faith that works by being obedient through suffering all the way if it means you die. Are you growing in sanctification by enduring this world in the righteousness of Christ? Christ wants to know and flips the script on his disciples. He says, no, don't concern yourselves with when or where, but only with what you are to do today and tomorrow until I come back. He will be looking for those who live in faith by persistently praying and contending. The days are evil, and we long for them to be made right. And so I'll leave you with this quote that I think is, sums everything up quite nicely. In the first book 
of the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is explaining to Frodo how the ring of power came to be, what it means. And Frodo says this, and I think, it, again, it applies to everything and sums up quite well. He says this, I wish it not have been, ha- I, wish it, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see, see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. So, when Jesus appears, what will he find you doing? And will it be in faith when he appears? Let's pray. Father, we come to you speaking to you, as you already know, about the injustices and the evil and how things are not right in this world. And so we pray to you and ask that you swiftly come and deliver your judgment and your justice and that you would rid this world and our lives of all that is evil and make right those things which are not right. And Jesus, we thank you so much for your first dose of justice that was not served upon us but served upon you so that we could be saved. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just empower us that while we wait for the return of our Savior and Lord Jesus to bring all things to fruition, to do away with all evil, what remains, and to make things finally right and restore the new heavens and the earth, while we wait, will you empower us and embolden us to be persistent and to contend in our faith, to be agents of justice in this world as we have been employed by the Father in this family business. May your word be on our tongues to speak to those who are in desperate need to be saved. For it is by the power of your gospel, by the power of your word, that people are made, that people go from being enemies of God to children of God. So may we be those agents. May we be a people that are patient in our faith waiting and trusting in you, but may we not be an idle people. May we take action as you have told us to so that when you return, Father, I pray that these people in this room will be found to be faithful and that we can answer Jesus' question, yes, Jesus, when you return, there will be faith in the world for you will find us. Father, I pray that as your spirit moves into the minds and hearts of the people here this morning, that there is something for us to change and to do and to think about, to assess in our own lives. I pray that you would do that. That you would reveal to each and every person here what they ought to do in response to the preaching of your word as you have spoken directly and specifically to them this morning. I pray that we would apply it to our lives and be changed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.